Think about the serenity of the great outdoors. The smell of fresh air, the sounds of birds, maybe even a taste of some nice fresh spring water. <clears throat> okay, I can't, I can't do the voice anymore. And, and I get that the outdoors to you might not be something that's better than your cold brew keg or your DoorDash delivery, but getting back to nature can be restorative. It can give you perspective in the context of sales quotas and revenue goals and everything in between. And I get that kind of sounds a little too self-help Instagram, but sometimes your inner lumberjack or lumberjane can help your business by getting you unplugged. It's definitely something that's helped Michael Litt, the CEO and co-founder of Vidyard. Using a chainsaw and some overbrush is hardly an appropriate metaphor to apply to the growth of a company, but doing so gave Michael the necessary point of view to contemplate the important things in life and in addition to this valuable outlook, his experience with the culture of Canada helped fuel his zeal for growth, leading to thousands of companies using Vidyard for all of their video needs. Michael's one of the deepest thinkers I know, and his thoughts on building a company with cockiness confidence is coming up next. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we showcase the people in the trenches actually doing the work. On today's episode, Michael Litt stops by and he discusses why you shouldn't be a solution searching for a problem, what tall poppy syndrome means for Canadian businesses, cultivating a culture of competition, as well as the importance of taking time to reflect. are you? What do you do? Let's Thank start you for very asking. Basic. My name is Michael Litt. Yeah. I am the CEO and co-founder of a business called Vidyard. I also, uh, I don't know if we've ever talked about this before, but I'm a general partner in a small fund called Garage Capital. That's a that's like a big Canadian one, right? Is it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's mostly Canada. It's yeah? 40 million AUM. So yeah. uh, it's, it's not big. It's not a big fund. Yeah. Uh, but it's seed stage investing. We've done about 80 deals over the past six years. And I'm really passionate uh, about helping SaaS founders. That's cool. It's kind of what I bet my career on. I've learned a lot in yeah. this journey. And uh, there's really a, a bit of a gap in early stage financing in Canada yeah. that's founder friendly and can support. And since we're still operating the business, my co-founder is one of my partners. Uh, we have a lot of fun. That's awesome. Yeah. Why this versus being a doctor, being a gardener, being a firefighter? A farmer. Like, yeah. Yeah, whatever. I love video, always have loved video. So my uh, Uncle John gave me uh, a shoulder-mounted VHS camcorder. Age there. Yeah. It was, we called it the, the RPG. Uh, and I would bring this thing to all of our family events and record everything and then go home and tape and reel, make an edit. And then at the next family event, we'd, we'd watch this video with music to the family event. And so when I got into high school and then university, I used video to, to communicate. So every design project we did in systems and engineering came with a video. I knew how to make video. I knew, knew how to use the software. Obviously, VHS moved on and into digital means. And so we started a company to make videos for businesses because we knew how to do it. And because we had a technical background, we could distill all this technical information into a really uh, uh, simply described kind of mechanism using visuals etc. And that was our kind of competitive advantage in the video production sphere. And then, of course, every company we made a video for was like, how do we put this on our website? You know, we built a simple hosting platform because we knew how to do that. That would allow them to control the brand. You know, it wasn't a YouTube player, which functions as an outbound link to YouTube.com, which is a terrible thing for a business. And so it was just simple video hosting, and we charged 20 bucks a month for it. 
And then the customer said, well, how do we justify the value of this video? Can you give us some type of data? Like who's watching it and who's watching it for, for how long? And can we build interactivity into the video player? And can you take that data and push it into our marketing automation system and our CRM? Can you personalize video? And so all these things we do now were literally asked for by our customer base. So we've always been a solution to a problem, never a solution in search of a problem. And I think that's a bit of our secret sauce. That's why Y Combinator funded us, because their motto is build something people want. And so yeah, video has just been such an essential part of my life. Like I'll strap on a GoPro when I'm cutting down trees and post that shit on Instagram because I just, I just love storytelling through video. At the time when you're doing, you know, kind of the video consulting production agency basically, how easy or how hard was it to get to the software? For us, it was pretty easy because, you know, we're both, Devin and I are both technically software engineers. When we heard that feedback, you know, for us it was relatively easy to step into building the software. And in fact, it was exciting because all of a sudden we realized if we did a thousand video projects and we charged every one of those companies $20 a month, you know, that's 20000 in MRR, which is a nice addition to the services business, which gives us more consistency, gives us kind of some extra take-home money, allows us to invest in other areas of the business. And of course, as these additional requests came, the video production services started to fund the development of that software. And when YC invested in us, they said, look, this services business is a distraction from your ultimate destiny of building this amazing company that helps businesses use video for success, which is our mission today. And so we shuttered that business and used the venture money to fund future development, and, and that's just what we became. How hard of a decision was that to give up the service side? Really hard, because at that point, you know, that was a quarter million dollar business, right? And we were four or five employees, and it was every project was funding a new hire or a new function or a new feature. And so moving from that to being venture-backed and burning capital and looking to sell these small contracts initially, which got bigger over time as the functionality got more robust, was absolutely scary. But we knew we could always go back to it, right? If this didn't work, we could start from scratch with the exact same business model and bootstrap it or just go in a different direction. And, and fortunately, we haven't had to do that yet. You've been in a lot of different ecosystems. What's holding Canada back and what's like, holy cow, Canada's going to be amazing? Like, what are the two ends of that right now? Yeah, this is this is a highly debated conversation in Canada that no one's ever heard. I'm here to cause controversy. So, yeah, yeah, I know. Well, the reality is the reason no one's ever heard this debate is part of the challenge, right? Canada is really good at quietly innovating and doing incredible things, right? Open text, built the algorithm, which they then sold to a company called Yahoo that became the first mass market adopted search engine. We, at some point, invented the mobile internet with a little company called BlackBerry. So I think a couple things happen in Canadian culture. One, innovation happens without a megaphone. Culturally, we're not that type of, of, of people. Canadians aren't necessarily a super proud culture, a super noisy culture. I think the other challenges and this is a, a hockey analogy, which is getting really Canadian, often we lose in the third period. This is so, a common thing yeah. in the Olympics, right? Canada kind of shits the bed. And I mean, and it's, it's the story for BlackBerry too, right? 
everything was going right for that business. It was an $80 billion market cap, invented the mobile internet, and you know, got disrupted with a completely different go-to-market challenge that they didn't necessarily see coming. Um, now that happened in that space to other companies, Nokia being one of them as well, but uh, yeah, it's, it, there's an interesting dynamic and an interesting cultural dynamic. I think that's shifting. Um, Shopify is a really great example of an immense force in Canada, uh, headquartered in Ottawa, big office in Waterloo, Toronto, $40 billion market cap, uh, you know, completely changing the way commerce is done on the internet, and that's building a massive ecosystem and spinning out a bunch of entrepreneurs as well. So I think like a lot of other ecosystems, we're going to see a lot more Canadian tech kind of rising to the global stage because there's a lot of focus on it. The government is putting a bunch of funding behind it. Canada is uniquely positioned to access both the U.S. market as well as EMEA um, because culturally there's similarities between us and Europeans and Americans. So we have this kind of unique advantage of, of literally sitting in the middle. Do you think the, the bridge to that, is it, is it confidence? Because it, it's, it's not, I wouldn't say that like Canadian startups and stuff lack confidence. It's just more the overly respectfulness, which you probably don't want to lose the like, yeah. you know, the sorry culture and such, right? Or, yeah, or sorry about the, that. Um, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think Canada also is a really great place to live. And so, you know, you, you kind of just, everybody's just really content living in, you know, one of the most peaceful countries in the world. And, you know, when there is a lack of resources or there is a risk to your future, that's when great innovation happens, right? Think about all the amazing stuff that comes out of industrial age, wartime, et cetera. Canada just kind of keeps going and, and U.S. companies come north of the border and set up operations there and hire engineers coming to the University of Waterloo, which is a great talent pool, and people have good lives. And I think that in some way stimmies innovation and stimmies this feeling of I want more and I want better. And, and there's this other thing in Canada called tall poppy syndrome where generally, you know, tallest poppy gets cut by the culture, right? Nobody likes it in Canada when somebody does really, really well. It's a, it's a well-known thing. And so people kind of shy away from that and just live these happy, content, contributing lifestyles. And, uh, and that might limit growth to some degree as well. How do you think about cultivating a culture of like competition? And obviously, like these aren't mutually exclusive concepts. But how do you kind of like accelerate those types of things that help, you know, that are great from the Canadian culture and kind of coax along those things that maybe need to be a little bit more aggressive or be that tall poppy as it may? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think it it really ultimately comes down to exposure. The beautiful thing about tech companies is that from day one you compete on a global stage, right? All your customers are all over the world. Your competitors probably aren't up the street from you, which wasn't necessarily the case in, in previous industrial cycles, right? And so for us to be truly competitive, we have to look at our competition. And my job as a CEO is ensuring that the team is motivated by the opportunity, aware of the competition, aware of what uh, a global landscape actually looks like. And the way I do that is by bringing in speakers, bringing in board members who are all American for the most part, that have been on the boards of some of the biggest SaaS companies in the world, both Canadian and, and US. I mean, Byron Dieter uh, has seen, I think, 11 or 12 cloud IPOs. So he comes and kind of lays the smack down and lays the expectation down for the team. Did he tell you about his rugby days? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's all I he mean, talks about. Super competitive, <laughs> amazing, amazing personality. So 
and we were talking about this earlier, right? I think as a founder, you are passionate about the problem you're solving and you're really good at starting stuff and beating that drum. But as a CEO, it's how you scale that effort that really, I think, separates the remarkable founder CEOs from the unremarkable founder CEOs. And that's the transition that I am going through and consistently challenging myself with and motivating the team to be the best company in this video space globally is probably the most important part of my job. What have been the factors that have helped you get through that transition of going from, hey, the vision and that's all that's needed right now to being a scaling, effective executive? This is a great question. I think one massive transition that happens in every CEO founder's lifespan is the realization that you are the sum of your parts as a company and that your opinion might be the right opinion but isn't necessarily the one that needs to be shared and you have to distribute the ownership of the problem and the solutions to the problem across a senior executive team and you need to set the frameworks in place to make sure that you have the best talent, that you're removing people that aren't good in the company, that really smart voices are rising to the occasion. Um, you have to set a strategy that is longer than one or two weeks out. Um, and the way I realized this was kind of a series of events where I felt like I got my, my, my butt handed to me in a way to use, to use very comfortable Canadian language. Very Canadian of you. Um, sorry. And, and so, the way that happened was one, I went out and hired some, some senior executives. It probably went two hands off. And the problem with that is I didn't see the problems that existed in their strategies not necessarily being a fit for our market early enough. And so I had to get back in as a leader to a bunch of people that were senior to me and joined by the hand of someone else and kind of built control of that company and, and the strategy and the vision and the mission again. And the way I did that uh, was by finding an executive coach that I worked really well with. And if you had told me before that, Mike, you need an executive coach, I would have been like, I got this. And that's the, that's the arrogance of the founder. And by seeing some of the challenges of my own limitations, I brought an executive coach and, and what his name is Hubert, he's amazing. What he helped me understand was, my responsibility as a leader to be the megaphone of the company and be the passion of the company and to build a team that collaborates and aligns and has open and transparent dialogue as a core part of their value and meets weekly and calls each other out on their blockers and applies those meetings and everything that gets talked about to this broader strategy map and then give them the permission to build the teams that they need and want by allowing them to do things like firing. Right? And this is something you and I talked a lot about. A company, as it's growing from 45 to 80, as ProfitWell did, or Vidyard, when we went, we went from 50 to 200 after our Series C, we were really good at hiring and, and finding cool people. But the hiring process you know, only really gets you 10% or maybe less of, of what someone's capable at. And we never built a culture around firing, right? around managing the bad talent out. And a lot of our managers were really great individual contributors that had never managed before. So, you know, their job is in their minds to make everyone successful. And if someone's not pulling their weight, potentially they were hiding that, right? So there's all these mechanisms and things that you don't think about when you're just solving a problem in a market um, that you have to start thinking about when you're solving that problem in a market via a vehicle of 
hundreds of people. And that's why I say founders are really good at starting stuff. CEOs are really good at amplifying the impact and the scale of those things. And I am on that journey and uh, learning as I go. Another thing that helps is getting away from the business and looking at it you know, from a, a remote location. So my wife and I, uh, she's also a founder who exited a company and is back into it. We, we just bought a little property on a lake about an hour and a half from, from the office that doesn't really have great internet. Um, it has just good enough internet that if I want to, I can, I can jump in, but it's bad enough that I don't feel like I need to. And, you know, out there I cut down trees. I, you know, drive an ATV through, through water. I get dirty. I actually bent my, I dropped the mower deck on the tractor on my wedding ring, which collapsed it, saved my hand. Like I've had all these near-death experiences. I fell off the deck and actually broke a bone in my foot two weeks ago. And all this stuff gives me this appreciation for what I get to do. I know some of these side <laughs> stories too. These are all new ones. Yes, yeah, like the last four or five let's, months. Let's talk about the chainsaw for a second. Yeah. Can we mildly tell that story for a second? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So... <laughs> Never used a chainsaw before. Very excited by the idea of a chainsaw. And so, of course, the thing I did was buy the most powerful chainsaw <laughs> with the biggest bar. And like, these are things you don't do, right? You want a nice, lightweight, easy to wield chainsaw. And in fact, the bigger the bar, the more dangerous it is because the moment of inertia on the tip is massive and it can snap back and hit you in the face. So I told my wife, I'm gonna get the Kevlar pants, the helmet, gloves, boots. So I got like, you know, it's like I'm sponsored by steel when I put all this shit on. And I'm out in front of the cottage clearing a view, and I'm literally using this massive chainsaw to cut, like, little inch-wide branches that are blocking the view. And I just cut something, and I stepped forward, and the blade was still spinning, and it hit my leg right where, I guess your femoral artery is in your right leg, right where it would be on my left leg. And because I was wearing the Kevlar pants, they, they caught the blade and stopped it. Having those near-death experiences at your own hand really makes you appreciative of the strategic challenges of building a business because it's all mental anxiety, none of it's physical, right? I mean, we used, to all, we used to walk around with swords and now we get to solve these really strategic issues. So when you start feeling sorry for yourself in these situations of, of scaling a company and the stresses and the anxieties that come with it, and I think it's compounded by the venture industry because the expectations are really high, you know, going away and almost cutting off your leg or losing your finger or falling off the deck, you know, because you're reaching for something you shouldn't be doing. All that stuff, I think, really grounds you and brings you back to the, you know, what makes you happy and, and, and how you can apply that energy to your work. It's like you became a sense. farmer to, like, feel alive. That's yeah. what it sounds like. Well, you know, there's yeah, this yeah. concept of, um, you know, when you're born into the planet, this is going in a crazy direction, Let's go but wild. I think it's fun. Let's go wild. When you're born into, the, into this, this particular planet uh, in this solar system. I like this particular planet, yeah, by the way. It's, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. it's an amazing place, right? Yeah. Like, look at the type of, I don't know if this is real, but yeah, it is. Look at the type of shit that grows. And, you know, there's cars zooming around. You look at a city, this network of human beings doing stuff and creating value. And that's all amazing. But... From day one, your parents kind of imbibe in you this sense of, of survival. And, and for my parents, it was, I want you to have a better job and a better career than I had. And my dad was an electrician for a local utilities company, and all of his bosses were engineers. And so they were very much like, you and your brother are going to go become engineers. And the University of Waterloo had a great program. And so, you know, we were, we were built into that motion. 
and all of a sudden, you know, there's this, there's this beautiful aspect of being a human, and then there's your survival instinct. And as your career develops, you get further and further away from who you are and the things that are amazing in life. And the further away you get to that, the closer you get to burnout. And so as a leader, you need a vehicle to bring yourself back to the things you love. Like before starting this company, I love surfing and downhill skiing, and I wanted to live in California where I could do both, and I didn't give a shit what I did. But we started solving this problem and having this amazing experience, and one thing led to another, and now, now I get to travel the world, but my job is very stressful and I'm always on, and those things I love doing, I do much less of. So it's so important to come back to those things, and, and you know, it just so happens that you know, cutting down trees and, and caring for a piece of property brings me back to the stuff I love, which is being outdoors. And that imbibes this sense of, of, of gratefulness and accomplishment. Because you know, like sometimes you set a strategy in motion and you don't know if it's going to work for a year, right? If I look at a tree and I'm going to cut down that tree, <laughs> that thing is coming down in 10 seconds or less, right? And so that instant gratification and coming back to those things you love is so important as a, as a leader, I think for anybody. And so we encourage that in our culture. Thanks to Michael for offering insight and, of course, telling us how he protects the hustle. With his help, now you know about the importance of being the solution to a problem instead of searching for one to solve, what tall poppy syndrome is doing to Canada, how to cultivate a culture of competition, as well as the importance of taking a step back from your company and reflecting. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. 